Welcome to the next episode of It's Now or Never. This week, we are sharing an excerpt from our numeracy community of practice. In this session, we are delving into the topic of algebra. This is the first of two sessions focusing on algebra. This week, we look at where does algebra fit into the curriculum? What are some of the key challenges students might have in understanding algebra? And some ideas about how we might address this in our classrooms. Before you begin this podcast, you might like to pause and re-look at the aims of mathematics in the Victoria curriculum. What stands out for you? This year, we have been discussing how we build students' appreciation of mathematics through its history, ideas, problems, applications, aesthetics, and philosophy. If you haven't seen it, you might also like to watch the TED Talk by Terry Moore, Why We Use X as the Unknown in Algebra. So we're going to be looking at developing algebraic thinking. And so we know algebraic thinking begins in the foundation years in mathematics. So it's actually in the foundation curriculum and it begins by representing practical solutions or situations to model addition and sharing. It's also there as sort and classify familiar objects and explain why we're putting them in those classifications. And it's copy, continue and create patterns with objects and drawings. So it starts in foundation and we move all the way through to those more complex things in seven to 10. So that's really nice to know. There's a real basis of roots of mathematics that our students do have. They're just not connecting as algebra because we don't start in foundation and say, hey guys, today we're learning algebra. We just bring in those patterns and number recognition and thinking about different ways there. So I'm just gonna ask if anyone's got anything that they'd like to share around developing algebraic thinking? One of the things I found really, I have developed this flip card, which I use for a magnet on the board, particularly uh, helping the Mylins kids or the TLI kids or introducing one-step equations. And I often put that in place of X, for instance, and then after we've done a few problems, I just flip it around and say, well, really, X just represents that sentence. What is this missing number that we're trying to find the value of? So when I start um, with algebra in U7, I just tip my pencil case out on the floor and just leave it. And and then the students are like, she's Mrs. Gone Mad, what are you doing? I said, I don't know, what what can we do with that? They just intrinsically start to sort and they either sort by colour or size or whatever. That's when we're doing like terms, that's where we're sort of going with that. Um, but my pencil case always represents X in my classroom because you never know what's in it. <laughs> I like both of those strategies, that's really good. I used to do something similar, Mark, in I would start by drawing Christmas trees or stars or smiley faces, emojis. Linking it back to where we were sitting earlier in the year, we looked at what we found as our top and bottom skills in NEVR. Now you'll notice here that algebra doesn't feature really heavily. It sort of sits in that middle ground for our students, but there were a couple of skills that students had a bit of trouble with. So this is just another thing. It's sort of for you to think about. We won't discuss it so much here, but this is from the Birth to 10 Numeracy Toolkit. I think this is a fantastic resource to use with your teachers because it unpacks what does patterns and relationships or patterns and reasoning look like? What's the meaning of it? What's the expectation? Why is it in the curriculum? And why is it in the curriculum is such a valuable thing to unpack as a team because I mean, one, students always want to know why we're we learning this, but two, you can see there it's really putting it into context. It's talking around this idea of patterns and explaining and predicting trends and thinking about science and nature. And 
all those things that students can use in everyday life, trend prediction. I mean, who wouldn't we all like to be the next person that builds the new YouTube or Facebook or Instagram that has all those algorithms that sit behind it to predict the new trend? Or if you're designing new sportswear or makeup or things like, what's the next thing? What's going to be the next big thing to invest in? Should you invest in cryptocurrencies? What's going to hit big? And kids are really excited about that sort of stuff. So there's some real everyday things that sit in there, which we build upon as sort of like that hook to get kids into why we're learning that in here as well. So you can see number and algebra inside the curriculum. So this is the in the introduction section of the curriculum. Really, really great resource again to go back into. And we've got those little links to say, hey, we've looked at this before. So thinking about why do we have it in the curriculum from the Victorian curriculum standpoint as well. And you can see there, once again, it's about patterns and it's about the relationship with numbers. How do we build relationships between numbers utilising those ideas of patterns? This is once again, just another link back. So it's really around building concepts. And we've talked about this before, the idea that we need to take everyday maths concepts and we need to unpack it in meaningful language for students because we're asking them to do a thing called dual. We're saying, take it from everyday language and then turn it into maths language and then turn it back into everyday language so you understand what's going on. So it's very similar to if we're asking a student to start learning in Italian or start speaking in Spanish. They're having to translate what's going on. So the same when we're getting them to write maths equations, we're asking them to translate it from a language they normally speak, their everyday English, into this symbolic language. And then we're asking them to translate back. So there's a little bit of that science of learning there that's worthwhile recognising goes on for students. And so things we know that work from the research and things that I can advocate for as someone who's used this in my classroom as well, and we've been talking about this for a while and I know a lot of you use this, is remembering back to every time we introduce a new concept, we bring it back to the concrete. So maybe through our concrete materials, maybe through concrete examples like Carolyn was sharing with the sorting the pencils in her pencil case or Mark with your um, little picture that you have as that placeholder. So you're bringing it back to concrete. You're then building students up into at the same time using here's how we represent that mathematically. Here's how we use our maths language. And so then they were scaffolding them to be able to utilise it by themselves. So you're kind of doing that all at the same time. And so these come from some fantastic resources that we always talk about. So Brooker, teaching primary mathematics, but it unpacks the developmental curriculum of primaries. And Di Seaman, who wrote The Big Ideas in Mathematics, so you may have seen it in the Mylands LMS, teaching mathematics foundation to middle years. So you don't need these books. They're just so you can see that we're drawing it from research and uh, there's another great resource as well, so that's why I've got the little book there and we'll share it. But there's some information that's come out from the learning sequences from South Australia. They're fabulous and we looked at them last time too, where they unpack some of these misconceptions. So one we've got here is it's really common for students and teachers to overvalue algebraic expressions and formula too early in our development or we move too quickly into let's put it into algebra without checking they've got exactly like you're talking about before Mark, checking they've got the basis, do they understand fact families, do they understand what's going on? So when we ask them to translate it, that it's there. Have they understood it? Have they got that? You'll hear that statement and we have saw it there. I understood maths until I added in the alphabet and then what was going on? 
for VATS, we can see students haven't got some of those key steps there. And so the same there, so we're really getting them to this understanding of, it's not just a formula, this is just the way we describe things. It's the shorthand way, it's our language way of having a common way of telling, talking to other people. We've got to have common language. This is our common language as mathematicians to share our ideas. So we're going to be using this framework again. So you see our little connection skill. We're going to be going through the idea that we've got our story, the problem we present to students. We want them to use symbols. So that could be pictures. It could be um, mathematic symbols. So thinking about that. And then we want them to be using some sort of material. Students need to go through this process in order to solve it. It's just our more, our students who get there quicker are going through this process really quickly in their head. They're really quickly forming a mental model and going, ah, oh, this is what the answer must be. This is how I solve it. For our students that are having more difficulty, they need to go through this process and be explicitly taught how to go through this process. How do I dissect a question? How do I know what's going on? So, NAPLAN. This was the NAPLAN question at year nine. It was question 38, so we know it's later in the paper, but we can see that it's not a super difficult question for students. So I'm gonna give you a few minutes to um, ponder what might be some of the things that reasons that students found this question difficult. Uh, so at the moment, we've got one there in the chat that says there's unknown value on both sides. Um, I suppose if the students kind of struggled with order of operations, that would be a tricky one to start. Not knowing that there are eight clouds and 12 clouds. They haven't made the connection that it's eight lots of that symbol and 12 lots of that symbol that they're yeah. sort of treating them as a separate number, I guess. There's some really great examples. So we can see there's lots of places students can get stuck with algebra because there's lots of these, what we might call pressure points for students. Those real um, key areas where misconceptions can creep in. I just wanted to stop though and really unpack some of where students can get stuck. This has come from the Maths Curriculum Companion and we looked at this last time with Claire. So one of the areas we can see for students is that they're misinterpreting what that means, exactly what you were saying there, Carolyn, about they might read 6D equals 12 and think that means six donuts cost $12 if we've asked them to create this expression. 6D equals 12. They've misinterpreted how those symbols work and what those symbols mean there. So we can sort of see that same concept coming through and what we suggested. They're not getting how this works together. Six lots of something. They're seeing it as six objects, six discrete objects, as opposed to six lots of a number. In terms of attributing that number to, it could be cost, but it also could be weight or length or volume mm -hmm. or, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we can see that for students, that misconception, if they're writing an algebraic expression, the accurate interpretation should be six times the cost of a donut is equal to $12. So understanding that we're saying it's the cost of the donut, not six donuts. So they're getting that concept of our unknown is standing for a value, not an object. And that can be a really tricky point for students. And that can come in, and we talked about it last year, it can come in in one of those concepts where students are not understanding that we're talking about an object as like a placeholder for a missing number. They're seeing it as a particular object. 
this is another example of that same thing and it's a really famous problem that you might have seen that comes from research by Clement um, in 1982. So it is old research, but Di talks about it in her book as well. And they say that six times as many students as professors at this university use S for the number of students and P for the number of professors. So write the problem as an equation. How will students write this out? 6S equals P? That's the most common students will give. And it showcases for us exactly what the previous slide was talking about, which is students are not understanding the algebra as a placeholder for a value. They're seeing it as an object. S is a student. There are six lots of students and there's a professor. They're not seeing it as a place value because, you know, letters are, are words and words are things. And so it's natural they're making that connection. It's just how do we unpack that for students? So this is the same thing here. So we can see the likely difficulties. This is a very similar one. This is student example work. We always love seeing some student examples of working this out. So very similar question. Two boxes of bananas are at the fruitier. They have the same number of bananas in each layer. The first box has two layers and the second box has three layers. How can we work out how many bananas there are all together? So we can see this is a very typical NAPLAN question. Typical thing we might ask in class as well. And on the left, we have Tom's response. And on the right, we have Bree's response. What do you notice in the responses from the students? I suppose it just comes back to the idea of the unknown being a thing, like the person on the left has just identified the unknown as being a single banana, rather than a collection of bananas in a particular layer on the right. Yeah, absolutely. We can see Tom is thinking of B as bananas. And the research calls this the fruit salad approach when we're teaching it. It's a really common thing we do as teachers. I did it in my classroom as well, where we're trying to make it easier for students by demystifying algebra, by demystifying the letters we're using and saying, hey guys, look, we're going to have bananas. What, what letter could we use for bananas? Oh, let's use B. Because we think that that's going to make it really easy for them. But what we're doing for our students that are really struggling with maths is we're reinforcing that concept that B is a banana because we're using the same letter. And so for those students that are trying to remember, they're trying to dual code, they're trying to go from English to maths to English to maths, they're trying to come back and forth. We're making that jump really difficult unintentionally for the students because they're going, okay, B, B is for banana. And when they learnt, when they learnt letters, they'd be going banana, b, 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 banana, B is for banana. So they've got that memory stored in their brain around this letter object correlation. And so it can be really difficult for students. Another example we can do is when we're teaching students to add algebra and like terms, we might say things like A plus B can't be simplified because that's the same as an apple plus a banana and you can't put an apple and banana together. I've said that. I was looking at the research going, I have uttered those things out of my mouth very many times. <laughs> I can picture the lessons where I was saying it. But what the research is saying is we're accidentally reinforcing this misconception to students that A is apple, B is banana. We can't have an apple banana, so we can't have AB. But then when we teach them A times B, they're like, what are you talking about? There's no apple thing. Where did that come from? Because <laughs> we're reinforcing this concrete idea of 
A to apple, B to banana and, and so on and so forth. So we can see that for Brie, she hasn't fallen into that trap because she can see that M is um, the number of layers of banana. So just a really easy tweak we can do for our teaching is make sure we're not using a letter that corresponds to the object because that makes it really hard for students. It's not going to fix all problems because there are some times when the question asks that, but by trying to avoid that where possible, I'm really making it clear that it's a placeholder for a number and using different letters. So that's where X's can be better because it's a placeholder, whereas an A or a B, or um, if we're using a symbol, if we avoid using the banana symbol because they're going to go, oh, that's the banana. So trying to um, mismatch that for them by tweaking the way we're giving examples. We may still use some of those other examples, but we're trying to make sure we pepper those other things in there to understand what's going on. So this might be an interesting question to give your students who are struggling with algebra to see if that's what they're thinking, to see if they are actually connecting the object with the letter and if that's the issue that's going on. Because unpacking what the issue is really impacts how we're teaching. For some of our students, that's not the issue. The issue is they're actually still struggling with adding numbers or the issue is they're still struggling with multiplication. So we've got to come to the understanding of what the issue is in order to address it. But this is a really common issue for students around algebra. So Di recommends, here's a really uh, same example we looked at before, slightly tweaked. You can exchange one euro for $2. Now she's got E for euros and D for dollars. Okay, we don't love that, but we ask them to write the relationship for the number of euros and the number of dollars, and then ask them to justify why the answer is not 1E equals 2D. So we're telling them up front, that's not the answer. Find the answer and find why this incorrect solution is not the answer. For my weaker students, I might actually have some euros and dollars and get them to do that, you know, putting them together to find the pattern so that they can come up with that algebraic thing. So, you know, when we start introducing algebra and patterns, we might get them to draw it out. So we might have some euros and some dollars, you know, in the um, plastic money kits and we get them to go one and two, two and four. So getting them to build that pattern up so they can find the formula, really concrete example for them. Because once they can see the pattern of what's building up, they can start to come up with what the algebra that we might be wanting them to do is. I also really like this technique and we're really clearly laying it out for the student. This is the thing that you're likely to think and actually voicing it to students. This is not correct. And we're going to explore why it's not correct. Okay? Because it is challenging because students kind of like, oh, what do you mean I'm wrong? For those of you who are interested in thinking a little bit more about why we put our misconceptions at the front of our teaching, you might like to watch Derek Muller's TED Talk, The Key to Effective Educational Science Videos. I'm handing it over to you to talk about some of this and some of the examples of how you might teach this. I don't know if anyone saw in the top of the chat I put in um, a solve moji, which is what I do as a bit of a lesson starter when we're doing algebra. That's not I've already Googled it, Caroline. <laughs> it's really good, but slightly addictive. I actually had a mum message me halfway through last year going, oh my God, what have you done? I'm doing this every day. Stop. <laughs> That's cool. That's a win right there. <laughs> I've got a post in my room. The second best thing you do in, in maths is to make a mistake. The best thing you can do in maths is to talk about it. 
And so I set up a lot of station work now, but I do it differently. And so I hand out work to the kids. And if you get the Excel books, I think the Excel books are fantastic because they do a lot of work in columns. And even though they graduate the work from question one and they might have A, B, C, D and E and then question two, A, B, C, D and E, I still get them to do in columns. I'll do question 1A and F, for instance, and then 2A and F. And then they've got to come back to me. And usually with the first person, I correct it. I give them feedback. And usually the first person is pretty spot on. But from there on after, I direct everyone from all. So I get them to talk and share and compare their answers. They have to agree on their answers before they come up. And I might see it to see that they've actually done it. But then I'll direct them to the kid that's finished first and get that he or she to correct the work. And again, if there's any dispute, you know, I'm just sort of listening with an open ear to their discussions and you, and you'll hear the to and froing of you didn't follow of operations or whatever the dialogue happens to be. But the point is I'm trying to get the students to have dialogue. Um, you know, kids that struggle to improve actually are reluctant for a whole host of reasons, I guess, to put anything down on paper, but in the context I'm trying to establish. The fact is they feel, I think they feel more comfortable showing their peers by chance if they've made a mistake than showing me. And so again, that allows them to enter a dialogue about what their thinking was more readily than they would with me perhaps. Yeah, getting that dialogue and Carolyn, that's a really great one as well. One thing on this page is incorrect. Which one is that? So really drawing out for the students. And the other great thing about all these techniques, one, you're not doing all the work, which is uh, fabulous. Two. We get to find out what's going on in their heads. That's mm. a really tricky thing. You don't know why they don't know what it is and you can't fix it if you don't know what it is. You know, that classic, the kids go, I need help. And you're like, with what? And they're like, all of it. You're like, where'd you get stuck? At the start. Well, you didn't get stuck at the start. We know that one plus one, where exactly, you're going to have to help me out because I'm not going back to prep and starting from there. And again, an extension from that too, and I've done this with like, I've got a SEAL class, so I might have them in groups of four. I might have a sheet with four questions and it's a bit of, they rotate around and you could apply it to almost any topic, even if it's algebra, and they've got to actually add all their answers together and I'll go, well, that's correct, or I'll say that's incorrect. So three of the four people may have the correct answer and one is, but all four of them they're all relied on that one answer. They have to identify, well, who, who has got the incorrect answer? What did they do wrong? So they're even checking, you know, the, the people that have done the correct technique, they're even checking that to see that it is correct as well. Mm. Yeah. Just when you guys were talking about, I suppose, you know, making mistakes and like allowing that to be a, a source for conversations, I've used this tool, I'll just pop it into the chat, called IFAC Glitch. It's an instant feedback assessment tool. And I basically, with my year 10s, when I was doing Algebra 1 at the end of each week, create a quiz. It was a multiple choice quiz, just a very quick one. I'd have the kids working in groups. Essentially, it comes up as like a multiple choice on a website and they'd work together to try and solve the problems. And if they decided, let's say B was the correct answer for question one, and if it was correct, you'd get um, a smiley face, but if it was incorrect, it would be like a confused face. So the students would know that that was the incorrect answer and that allowed them to kind of go back and think about, well, the way we solved this in the first instance was incorrect and trying to think about maybe where they went wrong and how they could get the correct answer the second time. And the, the assessment would allow you to go through as many um, 
answers as possible until you got the correct one. And it also generated like a really cool Excel file for me as a teacher, I could see it live. So just from my perspective, if there was a misconception amongst the students in the class, like let's say for question one, everyone was picking B as the answer rather than something else, you know, I could try and reflect on, was it something that I had done that led the students to all kind of go down that route of thinking B was the correct answer. And it was, yeah, it was, it was really, really easy to use and got really good feedback from the kids and from my, my own data that I collected is really useful. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening to this excerpt from our numeracy community of practice around algebra. Uh, thank you once again for listening to its Now or Never podcast released every two weeks. Make sure you subscribe through Apple if you would like to keep up to date. If you would like to be involved in any future podcasts, please don't hesitate to reach out to your student achievement manager. And until next time, keep safe.